Okay. In Psalm 25, this is generally described by most commentators as an individual lament. Uh, Some describe it as a psalm of trust. It is an alphabetic acrostic. It's not a perfect one because there are a couple of letters missing. And there's one letter that's used twice. uh, But it generally follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet as it begins the various verses. In some of these sections, usually this section speaks of God, the Lord, in third person as to who He is. There are some sections that will address Him in second person, particularly verses 8 through 10 and verses 12 through 15. They will address Him personally. But let's read the first seven verses and see what is stressed here. The text says, A Psalm of David... To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. For you are a God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. For they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Okay. Now, looking at the context, in verse 1, he says, To you I lift up my soul. 25.1. Lift up my soul. And that word soul could be just translated lift up myself. But remember back, this is a contrast to 24 and verse 4. Uh, The Bible talks about the one who has clean hands and a pure heart entering the hill of the Lord, his holy place. One who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. He did not lift up his soul to falsehood. And we stated there in 24.4 that falsehood could be anything false. It could be a false god. could be either. But, but in contrast to those who do not lift up themselves to a false God or what is false, He lifts up His soul to the Lord. What does it mean to lift up our soul to the Lord? Well, in context, I think it's defined. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. In this context, To lift up our soul to the Lord is to trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. He's going to use the phrase trust in the Lord in verse 3. He's going to talk about those who wait for the Lord. He's going to talk about taking refuge in the Lord in verse 20. But all of these are the same kind of idea. 
So that's why the NIV then, instead of talking about lifting up their soul, it, it, it just goes ahead and says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Go ahead and read the second line. So, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Verse 2, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me. Yeah, I I think it could be... So, it both places has I trust. Okay. So, that's how they're... That's how they're interpreting it. It is a different phrase in Hebrew. Um, All translations at some point do that. But um, some John have rearranged the words here too because of the um, trying to preserve the acrostic. Because here's, here's a little problem with that acrostic. When you start verse 2... Uh, verse 2 it says my God which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet that it begins with it's the second word that actually begins with the second letter so some have twisted it around because of that did I express that very well Um, okay some say yes some say no some say what are you talking about so so um but some of them have 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 done it because they've altered the text a little bit to 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 get all that in line they see an acrostic so they're going to make it work they're going to make it work exactly and um as as we stated before it's kind of an imprecise uh acrostic here but um so I think that's probably what they're going ahead and doing. But I trust in you. Do not let me be ashamed. And did you notice that the idea of being ashamed or not being ashamed is used three times here. Three times in verses 2 and 3. And he says, Do not let me be ashamed. And do not let my enemies rejoice over me. One of the things that's interesting about this psalm, like a lot of them, it's going to close the same way kind of it starts in that statement in verse 2. Do not let me be ashamed. That's going to be found also in verse 20. Do not let me be ashamed. So it begins and ends this way. But he says, do not let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies rejoice over me. And he says, let none who wait, indeed none of those, and this is, a, this is an affirmation, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed, while those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. So he begs God not to let him be ashamed, and his, the heart of his understanding is that one who waits on the Lord does not be put to shame. This is his confidence. This is what he believes. This is him pleading for this to prove true in his specific case. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. None who wait for you will be ashamed. But those who are evil, the ones who are ashamed, are the ones who deal treacherously. They're the ones that are going to be ashamed. 
So don't let me be ashamed and keep your record as a God who lets none who wait for you be ashamed and those who deal treacherously are put to shame. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is the use of the word ashamed, as we stated, it's three times in verses 2 and 3, and the two times it appears in verse 3 are back to back. Do not let the ones who wait on you be ashamed. Let them be ashamed. It just, it just catches your attention uh, when you're looking at the original text. So, as he is begging God not to let him be put to shame, which is a key thought in verses 1 through 3, he is also begging God to teach him his ways in verses 4 through 7. Make me know your ways. Teach me your path. Notice the various terms that he uses as he makes a plea to God. Make me know your ways. Teach me. Lead me. And teach me. So he is begging for God to be uh, not only the one who delivers him in the midst of his crisis and makes him not be afraid, but also is the one who reveals himself, who makes him known, who teaches him, who leads him, and who teaches him in God's way. For you, he says, are my salvation in you. For in you, for you, I wait all the day. I think it'd be interesting sometimes just to take all the things in Psalms that are said to to be true all the day and kind of tie them together. Here is I wait on you all the day. Now that is that's that's trust, isn't it? I mean, if he all day long he is waiting for the Lord's salvation, he is waiting. For the Lord's deliverance. I wait for you all day long. The idea of waiting for the Lord is here in verse 3, in verse 5, and it will later come up again at the end of the psalm in verse 21. For I wait for you. So it's one of the key ideas. Wait upon the Lord. Good lesson too. What does it mean? Wait on the Lord. It means different things in different contexts. The Bible says, uh, "Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you." That's Proverbs twenty verse twenty two. What does wait for the Lord mean there? Wait for the Lord means not to take vengeance in your own hand. In that case, to wait on God's timing. But it means different things in different contexts. But he asked God to make known His ways. And, and notice the terms like ways, paths, that will appear regularly throughout this psalm. These terms are in verse 4, and, and these ideas will, will appear regularly. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. You are the God of my salvation. Now, now everybody in this class, I assume, was among those who who knew my two, two questions Sunday night. So look down at verses 6 and 7. So no, this is a crew that this is not over your head. What would you say is a key word in verses 6 and 7? Remember. Hey, hey, there it is. Remember in chapter 25, verses 6 
and 7, the word remember is key. And that word remember is used three times in this passage. Here he says in verse 26, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and loving kindness. Remember your compassion and loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. So, so twice he is asking God to remember something. He's remembering his compassion, his loving kindness. Remember me according to your loving kindness. And then he's asking God not to remember something. And he's not to remember his sins. Now, whether he says it remember or don't remember, all of those are a call for loving kindness and compassion, aren't they? Do not Remember me according to your loving kindness and do not remember the sins of my youth. We have a song that says that. Remember not. I forget uh, all the other parts. Remember not the sins of my youth. I remember that line, but I don't remember. What's the song as a whole? Unto thee, O Lord. Unto thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's based on Psalm 25. We could sing that tonight. Somebody has let us down with Psalm 25 and the song. Okay, they're there, but who who shall lead us from this tree? Who who will appear? We are like sheep without a shepherd. We have no one to lead us in the song. But anyway, we'll, we'll we'll see what we can do. But but remember me according to your loving kindness and your compassion. Now we want to come back. Um, that word loving kindness was used twice. It was used in verse 6 and verse 7. And it's going to be used again in verse 10. Loving kindness. Now that's one of the key words in the book of Psalms. And we're going to talk about it more in just a second. The word compassion. The word compassion is... Tied, it's translated mercy in some of your versions, isn't it? In verse 6. But this is really connected to the Hebrew word for womb. And the idea is, as a mother has compassion on the child of her womb, so the Lord has compassion on us. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and loving kindness. They have been from of old. Now, that word from of old can mean from long ago or it can mean from eternity. And either of them would apply here, wouldn't they? For they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth. There are going to be three times in this psalm, three times that he asks for forgiveness. Three times. Verse 7, verse 11, verse 18. Was there forgiveness in the Old Testament? Yes. Those people viewed it that way. I, I'm not saying that it happened because of those Old Testament sacrifices. It ultimately was 
in light of Jesus, but there are many times that speak of them as being forgiven. But but what thoughts or questions do you have on one through seven? Like there anything? Do, do we uh, do we have any idea about the time when they would have written a song like this? No, and, you know most most writers don't even really try to take a stab at it as far as like you know trying to specify it. And um, so, but no, we 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 don't. And uh, sins are a big part of this, um, but it is not the 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 so, It's almost the sole focus of Psalm fifty one, and it's not that here. It's not that in Psalm twenty five. It's interesting in verse seven that he says, you know, the basis upon which he will. Uh, remember him according to his loving kindness is God's goodness saying sometimes he'll he'll say right that for your name's sake yeah in verse 11 you'll say oh, that okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah verse 11 you'll say for your good and, and you're really in a certain way uh, those are very closely tied ideas because God's reputation is a caring loving a kind God he wants that to be you know upheld in this but just as verse verse uh, seven, verse seven speaks of the Lord's goodness, and goodness is the next to last word. That is the first word of verse eight, but it's translated good. So verse seven talks about the Lord's goodness. Verse eight says, "Good and upright is the Lord." And the word upright is he is straight and um, and you know he is as one writer said um, it's straight level undeviating are various things involved in this in this word upright good and upright is the Lord therefore he instructs sinners in the way um, and. It is interesting that he speaks of instructing sinners in the way. Um, what does the word, you've heard this sometimes before. Some of you that have been around a long time have heard this. I don't know if the younger ones would have heard this as much. Because I haven't heard this in many times in the last few years. But what does sin basically mean? What, 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 do you, what does it mean? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Missing the mark. You heard that in sermons all the time. Could you attach a passage to that, David, or anybody else? Let me give you all a passage. You, you may have. First John 3 4. First John 3 4 says, uh, it, it defines sin, but it's, I think it says sin is lawlessness. Yeah. But a transgression of the law. Transgression and, of the law. And Trans- I've heard that talked about as missing the mark. Yeah, that's like right. But but the word sin is actually used in Judges twenty verse sixteen. It's in a secular context, or not a not a not where it's translated sin. It says people from the tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, and that's our word sin. 
Judges 20, verse 16. You remember that civil war that happens between Benjamin and all the rest of the tribe? Judges 20, verse 16. They could slay a stone at a hair and not miss. So to, to sin is to miss the mark. And notice this imagery here. God is instructing sinners, people who miss the mark, miss the way, miss the path. He's directing them in the way. On the path. You know, it's, you know, for, I, I can relate to sheep and that I can get lost extremely easily. Um, and um, I know one time I was on a call in, uh, I was to be on a call in radio program uh, with, um, with Ken Green. And, and, um, and I'd been to the place several times before and, and, um, and I'm hoping he's not mentioning this. The show starting because I'm wandering around Nashville, lost where I was, and, or that I was supposed to be on with him. And he sure does. He's, he's probably wandering around lost out there, and I was. And but he after he asked me after the show, he said, "What happened?" I said, "I could get lost. <laughs> I could get lost going out my front door." I said, "I can get lost." As easily as anybody I've ever known. So I said, I don't know where I was or um, or what happened. And the point is, I can miss the mark easily. God is instructing people who get lost. He's instructing them in the way, in the path, on the road. He gives them good instructions. He leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble his way. Now let me tell you something about this word humble here in verses in verse 9. It is the same word the word translated humble here. I'm sorry. In verse 9 twice is the same word translated afflicted. I believe the verses are verse 16 and 18. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's all the same word. So, um, again, does it make sense to translate it with the same word? It may. But I think the point of these humble, afflicted people are people who are looking to be led and they're willing to be led by God. They they may understand their sin in verse 8 and therefore they're willing to be led. You, you think about it. Most people who have suffered a great deal, who have suffered intensely, how many of them do you know that you would describe as arrogant people? I mean, think about it. There may be some, but that's not generally true, is it? Most people who suffer have a built-in reminder of their dependence upon God and their need of God. And for anybody to learn, for anybody to, to... They have to be teachable. And God... God is pictured in this psalm as a teacher. And He leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble His way. And notice in verse 10, the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant covenant and His testimonies for your 
name's sake. Now, tying in verse 6, verse 10, 6 and 7 and 10, notice some words that are used to describe God. God is full of mercy, loving kindness. That is actually used three times in each of those verses. He is full of loving kindness. Uh, He is full of truth. That same word was used in verse 5. It's kind of outside this list. But then then, um, also it speaks of God's covenant. And remember when God reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus 34? And He reveals Himself to Moses and He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful, full of loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness, keeping loving kindness to thousands, keeping loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 say, to those who love Him and keep His commandments. Uh, But the word covenant appears in there somewhere. Um, I don't remember which verse it is in Exodus 34, but the word covenant does appear. The point is, it may be that, that God's description, the description He is harking back to, particularly focuses historically on that revelation of God in Exodus 34. After the people had committed the sin of the golden calf, after they had sinned in such a horrible way, God reveals Himself as a God of mercy, a God of loving kindness, a God of truth. It's what covenant is, what verse? Ten. Ten. Okay. And um, is it Exodus 34, ten? Yeah. Okay. And verse 10 in this text as well. But my point to God reveals Himself is all of this. And again, and this is what John was saying earlier in verse 11. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquities, for it is great. Um, do all of your translations have that the iniquities are great? There in verse 11. Do any of them have that they're many? Okay. Most of the translations I was looking at too said great. Generally this is a word, and this, this may be a, a minor point, but this word is generally translated to speak of many versus few instead of great versus small. But he is conscious. Either way, it's a consciousness of sin. But he is conscious of his many sins. But he begs God to forgive. He begs Him to forgive on the basis of your name's sake. That is, for your honor, for your praise, for your name. Where have we read something recently that was for your name's sake? Psalm 23, you lead me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. For your name's sake, lead me in the path 
of righteousness. But often there is an appeal made for God to lead us in the right way or God to forgive us based upon God's name. Uh, for example, Psalm 31.3 is a lot like 23.3. 3. 31.3 states... Uh, for you are my rock and my fortress. For for your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. For your name's sake, God leads us in the paths of righteousness, and God forgives us for His name's sake. Not only twenty five twenty eleven, but listen to Psalm seventy nine verse nine. Help us, O Lord, uh, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for Your name's sake. When God forgives us, it doesn't tell us about how good we are. It tells us about how good He is. For your name's sake. And the fact that any of us are in a right relationship with Him is a testimony to His mercy. His loving kindness and His truth. For Your name's sake, O Lord. What thoughts do you have there? In uh, seven, don't re- do not remember the sins of my youth. Verse uh, eleven: Pardon my iniquity. It's the same idea, right? It's oh, yeah. expressed different. Absolutely. And in verse in verse uh, eighteen, the end of that, he forgive all my sins. So he's just using synonyms, basically, there for that. But three, uh, pleas for forgiveness. I can't help but uh, notice in verse uh, nine, he teaches the humble his way. Yes. And in verse ten, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant, His testimonies. In studying Mark 4, where Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, uh, He uses the expression that, uh, well, He quotes from Isaiah, that hearing they don't hear and seeing they don't see. And what what you notice is that there are a lot of cases, even the disciples are having difficulty uh, latching on to who Jesus is and what He's saying. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And in order to learn, we've got to be humble. And um, I think that not to get far afield, but when Paul says not many wise, not many noble, in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, following are called, um, that no flesh may glory before God or boast before God. If you go, and you've probably heard me say this before, if you go to the poorest nations of the world, whatever they do religiously, and whatever problems they may have, and they may have all kinds of false religion, they're going to believe in God. It's the prosperous, affluent nation that don't. And if you go in this country to the poorest and most crime-ridden areas of this country, 
Are those going to be your atheists? Or is it going to be in the Ivy League schools, the Harvards and Yales, and the places like that? Why? I mean, there may be a lot of problems with those people in those poor areas. But they got enough sense to know there's a God. And often those who think they know everything aren't willing to listen to his teaching. Now, there are exceptions. I mean, there, I mean, we had a person that's a teacher on the board at Florida who taught at Harvard and strong believer in God. I don't know how he survived. Exactly, but but he did, <laughs> and uh, but um, so, um, but you understand what I'm saying. We have to be humble, we have to be teachable, and we have to be willing to listen to him. And and I think that's part of what verses 12 through 14 get to. It says it it, it opens. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. And the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenant. Who is the one who fears the Lord? I'll tell you one thing I would say in this verse about what it means to fear the Lord. It means to be willing to be taught by him. To be willing to be taught. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he is choosing. If you, as a matter of fact, there are several passages in the Bible that connect fear of the Lord with the reading of Scripture. The king was supposed to make a copy of the law to read it all the days of his life that he might learn to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 and 19. Anytime we open up the word and we are recognizing that God is the center of the universe and we want to see what he says and we want to do what he tells us, that is a process of us instilling instilling in our hearts the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity. Now, do most of your versions have prosperity there in verse 13? Could that leave a false impression in our day and time, in our day of television preachers, uh, as to what that means? The word prosperity, which is used... In verse 13 is the same word good that was used in verse 7 when it spoke of the Lord's goodness. And then in verse 8, the Lord is good and upright. The Lord is good. The Lord blesses us with His goodness. And the Lord blesses His people with Good. Our soul will abide in good. I can remember one time I was at a get together, or it was a, it was a, um, he was talking about business, and the person made a statement about 
enjoying the good things of life and he defined them solely in material terms. And uh, is that the good things of life? Not eating a hot dog, but having a fancy dinner. Um, Christy just got back from keeping her grandkids. They're pretty excited about hot dogs. <laughs> and say, that's the good things. It's the good things of life. But that's not what the essence of life is and what we eat and what we drink. In a certain sense, to know the goodness of life is to know the God who is good. That is it. His soul will abide in good. His descendants will inherit the land. And the secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. He will make them know His covenant. Did you notice the word covenant was used in verse 10? It is used in verse 14. The word covenant. But um, that statement, the secret of the Lord, the secret of the Lord... Um, a couple of passages that use this particular word are Jeremiah twenty three eighteen, Jeremiah twenty three eighteen. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Now, in the context, this is talking about people who are prophesying. Who God is not sent and God is not spoken to. But that word counsel there, and in Amos 3 verse 7, the Bible uses, I think it's Amos 3 7 that uses this term when it says, Surely the Lord will do nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel, here it's this way, to his servants, the prophets. But here, this talks about special revelations that he gives to his prophets. This is the same word that's used in 25 verse 14 and translated secret. Just as the Lord reveals what he's going to do to the prophets, the Lord reveals special things. He reveals the secret of the Lord is revealed to those who fear Him. Now, does that mean that God whispers something nice to our hearts or does that mean as a result of coming to Him and looking to His will, He opens up our eyes wide that we may see? I tend to think the latter. But in verse 20, 15-21, He says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord. My eyes are continuing to the Lord. For He will pluck my feet out of the net. To, to have, to speak, being speak of, to speak of being caught in a net was a way to talk about facing dangers. For example, in Psalm 9 verse 15, 9 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit they have made in the net which they have hid, their own foot has been called. In the net which they have hid. Here, he will pluck my feet. It's like we're trapped in the net and we don't have any way out. And he is going to pluck us up and lift us up from the net. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious. 
For I am lonely and afflicted. Remember we said the word afflicted is the same word translated humbled in verse 9. The word that's translated lonely was the word that was translated only back in 22 verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only, from the power of the dog. He spoke of his only life. Now it is used for I am lonely and afflicted. He's lonely. He's full of troubles. In verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction. Same word as verse 16. And my trouble and forgive all my sins. Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. And because his enemies are so many, so strong and so hateful. He needs God's protection. Verse 20. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. For I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Um, In verse 21, the question is asked, is the integrity and uprightness the integrity and uprightness of God or of David, the psalmist. It is interesting that when uh, David is um, David is described by God in these same terms in 1 Kings 9, 4. God says, as for you... He's telling Solomon, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness. That's 1 Kings 9, 4. It uses those two terms in verse 21 of David. But is this of David or is this of God? It could be either way. It could be God's integrity and God's uprightness, which was already referred to in verse 8. But... Whether it's his integ- God's integrity or uprightness or, or the author's, he says, I'm going to wait for you. Just like he said in verse 3 and verse 5, he is waiting for the Lord. What do you notice different about verse 22 than the other verses? Do you notice something? Well, he, yeah. he says, redeem Israel. Yeah. And so it's like the whole, and he's been focusing on himself. Yes, yeah. he's been focusing on himself, as David says, and as David and, and Christie were saying, is this is more on the nation as a whole, redeem Israel. Now, it this uses a letter in the acrostic that's kind of out of order, and so some have suggested that it may have been added by an inspired hand later who wanted to apply the struggles of David to the struggles of all Israel. You know, how do we know? Uh, Some of these writers are are so confident that they can um, look at a document from some years ago and tell you, oh, this was added then. (laughs) This was added. And and I don't know if y'all 
might be a slight tangent, but sometimes I've had to write like a 25 or 30 page paper. And when you do that, you start and you say, okay, I'm going to write down some things I know right now before I even start, and things I want to cover. And then I add things to that as I go along and add things at different points. Now, I've written all that. I've written it usually in a process of two or three months. And I can't tell you where I started. And I can't tell you what I added, when I added what. Yeah, so these writers can go back and they, oh, obviously. <laughs> I, I just don't, I'm not so convinced of that. Um, but I don't know that I covered that as well as I should. Matter of fact, I'm quite confident I didn't. But what questions do you all have? What questions do you have? This is not necessarily a question, but in verses 4 through 7, he is um, asking, make me know your ways, teach me, teach me, lead me. And then verse 8 and 9 are the answer to that. And even verse 14, that God is the one who does that. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's good. He's begging God to teach him. God indeed is the one who can teach us, direct us on the right path, and lead us in the right way. Uh, before we get to what it says about Christ, I, I want to also, I don't know if I've done well enough at emphasizing this. I want you to think too, as you read the psalm, just what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? About who He is? It teaches well, all those things we talked about before on the board. God is a God of compassion. Or some of your versions have mercy. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of loving kindness. He's a God of truth. He's a God who keeps His covenant. He is a God who teaches us the way we should go and the path that we should take. All of these are things the text reveals to us about who God is. And and whenever whenever you make that list in in the Psalms, you know right there everything you're putting on that list also applies to Jesus. Because Jesus is just the clearest revelation of God, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, He is revealing Himself in His Son as He comes to this earth and dies for our sins. So, so those lists overlap, but I don't want to forget to highlight that. What are some ways, though, that you would specifically say that Psalm 25 applies to Christ, or some words that you can hear and you think of instantly that this is Christ. Not that this first talks of David's experiences, but then there's a deeper fulfillment in him. He instructs sinners in the way. Okay. He instructs sinners in the way. Um, He instructs sinners... And particularly those sinners seem to be identified too as the humble. 
Boyd was mentioning some of this earlier. Do you remember Jesus' prayer? I thank you, Lord, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babes. He is teaching the humble. Those who think they know, just scoff at Him because He's never been educated in our schools. He didn't need to go to school. Um, He wrote the book. Uh, But He instructs sinners. He instructs the humble. Yes, that is one way. Um, What else? What's that? Forgives. Okay, he forgives. They forgive. Let's let's say that one just a second. We're going to come back to that. So, how about the statement in verse nineteen? Look upon my enemies; they are many. They hate me with violent hatred. Jesus' enemies were many, and they were truly filled with hate. Isn't it amazing that one who had done all that Jesus had done and cared for those, that the crowds would shout, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And, but that statement, He instructs sinners in the way, this is in 25, 8 and 9. The statement about how He is hated is in Verse, verse 19. Okay, the reason I wanted to save what Christy said is because I want us to go in the order from the enemy to the cross. Now, a lot of these things will have some application to the cross, won't they? And one of them, as she, uh, is, she was saying, He forgives sins via the cross. That request to forgive in 7, 11, and verse 18. He forgives sins via the cross. Through Him we are forgiven from all things from which we cannot be forgiven by the law of Moses. Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Um, And um, think to... On the cross, specifically, you see in verses 6 and 7, that cry, Remember me. Who says that to Jesus on the cross? The thief. The thief says that, Luke 23, verse 42. Remember me. And so, just as David asked to be remembered according to your compassion, according to your loving kindness, don't remember my sins, but remember me according to your loving kindness. So the thief cries out, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. And I also think of the words of verses 25, or excuse me, verses 16 and 17. He was lonely. He was afflicted. He was lonely. He was afflicted. His 
troubles are enlarged. Does that apply to the cross? And he was distressed. Distressed, yes. That's a good point. Uh, Use the word. I need to. I did not look that word up in the Greek translation and see if it's the same word that's used in the New Testament. I I, I didn't. But that's. But it's. But that's a good thing to do, and I'm glad you said that, David, because I had not thought of. I I just thought of the general picture, but but I need to look up and see if these very terms are used. But I want you to think about this too. He says that those who trust in you will not or wait on you will not be ashamed but the enemies will be ashamed you know th- there was a shame involved in the cross wasn't there he hebrews 12 verse 2 died on the cross despising the shame but it was reversed in the resurrection And in the resurrection, in the death and resurrection, He is victorious over His enemies. In Colossians chapter 2, the text says, Colossians 2 and verse um, 14 and 15, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. In the resurrection, Jesus is shown not to be the victim, but the victor. His foes are the ones who are disarmed and defeated. He is the one who is triumphant, and victorious. And so all of these things are ways in which Jesus fulfills this psalm. There may be more. Did you all have think of anything else as we were talking? Verse 22. You know, redeem. Good point. Very good. I mean, He redeems. We have redemption through His blood. 25 verse 22. And... Very good. Colossians 1 7. Um, now there's Colossians 1 13 and 14. And Ephesians 1 7. We have redemption through his blood. Oh, very good. What else? Anything? Well, I appreciate you being here, guys. Uh, does this mean, John, you're leading the song? Probably. Okay. Okay. And uh, I knew I didn't. I knew I. I didn't want that task myself. But uh, but we're glad you're here and uh, glad to see um, uh, young brother Babcock with us the first time. Where is he? Oh, there he is. There he's in, in, in mom's lap or grandma's lap. But um, Brian, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Father in heaven, we are uh, truly uh, blessed through you. We're thankful that uh, we can be redeemed through Jesus. We're thankful that we can uh, trust in you 
Uh, we pray that uh, we would uh, be humble, uh, that we might uh, be able to be taught by you, and as we realize and get closer uh, to realizing who you are, just how great you are, um, it causes us to uh, pause and reflect on how we could uh, have sinned and continue to be selfish, but we pray that uh, we will, uh, as we draw closer to you, we would understand your greatness and it would cause us to make changes in our lives that uh, not only uh, for our sake but so that we can teach others uh, the same uh, redeeming qualities that uh, can be found through you and your love. And thank you for our time that uh, we can uh, be together and uh, study from your word and we give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.